22 to 18. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you <clears throat> lacks wisdom, <clears throat> let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its, flower, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial. For when, he's has, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every, perf every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the very word of God. Last week, we set the stage for our study of the book of James over these 12 weeks. This week, we jump into the letter, taking a look here at these verses, verses 2 to 18. Most commentators now agree that the first chapter of James provides an introduction to the whole letter. These verses take us from topic to topic in rapid fashion and seemingly without much progression of thought. James speaks about trials, wisdom, and prayer, the rich and the poor. He writes about anger about being a doer of the word and not just a hearer of it, and the need to bridle the tongue. It's not clear why one subject leads him to address the next. But what is striking about James chapter 1 is that all of these subjects are taken up again in chapters 2 through 5. So again, James is here giving us a heads up to the things that he wants to address in his letter. Now, when we look at this introductory first chapter, it appears that there are two sections to it. Notice that the subject of trials and tests of faith, which is introduced in verse 2, is taken up again in verses 12 to 15. Did James forget he wanted to say more about the subject? No, this suggests 
to us something of a structure for his writing that we may not notice at first. It's a well-known structure called an inclusio, in which a writer begins and ends a section with a similar focus, signaling that this focus is an important theme for what he wants to say. In fact, since James returns to this theme again at the end of his letter, the whole book, and not just the first part of his his introduction, seems to have this theme as its major focus. James, like the Old Testament book of Job, is one of the places we can go to in our Bibles for wisdom on how to handle the various trials and tests of our faith with a confidence that comes from knowing that we are secure as citizens of the kingdom of God. This is not theological theory. James is not writing from an ivory tower. He writes with the heart of a pastor. He knows that trials of various kinds confront Christians all the time. He knows how serious this is, the danger that comes with it. And he wants to do all he can to help struggling believers. Who among us has never faced a test of faith? They come, as James says, in all kinds of ways. They are of various kinds. I look out on all of you today, and I am aware of some of the battles that you have faced. And in many ways, I am amazed that you are still here, still in the battle, still holding on to faith in Christ. Not everyone makes it. And it would be foolish for any of us to think that we do not have many more struggles awaiting us in the future. Let's not have our head in the sand. Let's see what James has for us, the wisdom that James has for us forged in real life issues that he knew his audience was facing. James encourages us in this first section of his introduction, verses 2 to 18, to maintain, first, our kingdom perspective. Second, maintaining a kingdom perspective will give us a quiet confidence. And then lastly, a steady resistance to all that seeks to threaten our Christian faith. So a kingdom perspective, a quiet confidence, and a steady resistance. First, in verses 2 to 4, James encourages us to face the trials of our faith, and you better do this, with a kingdom perspective. What James does not do here is answer the question everybody wants to ask. Why do Christians suffer in the first place? That is one of the major philosophical questions of all human existence. It confronts every worldview, Christian or not, religious or not. Some see human suffering as as a major challenge to theism, but the problem of suffering is a problem that every worldview has to answer. 
The particular problem that suffering raises for Christians, and one that James seems to be taking on here, is this. If Christianity is true, if the kingdom of God has already broken in, if, as we discussed last week when we set the stage, Israel's exile is over, and in Israel's Messiah, Jesus, sins are forgiven, then why do we still suffer? Why do Christians face serious threats against their faith if indeed the Messiah has paid the penalty for our sins? It could, of course, mean that Christianity in particular is simply not true, that Jesus was another failed Messiah, and that suffering exists because we are still in our sins and reaping the consequences for our sins. In other words, from a theological perspective, one of the reasons that we may be suffering is because we are under the curse. That makes perfect sense in light of the biblical story. You could still be a theist and hold to that perspective, looking forward to a Messiah to come and finally pay the penalty and bring us home from exile. But you couldn't, of course, be a Christian theist and hold to that perspective because this is the Christian argument Jesus is not a failed Messiah. He did, in fact, bring into the present the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God. He did, in fact, bring an end to all our sin. There is, therefore, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Christians do not suffer. They do not face trials of their faith because there's still a price to be paid. No way. The good news of the kingdom of God is that Jesus paid it all. So that's the reason why James can say right off the bat, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, can we just go ahead and get out of the way any idea that James expects Christians to jump up and down with glee when they go through a trial? It is the nature of sagely advice to suggest to us that things are not always what they seem and how they legitimately feel in the moment. So when someone is going through a trial, be careful, be wise about how you minister to them. Quoting James 1 verse 2, or reminding them of a verse like Romans 8, 28, is probably not your best first move. Nevertheless, verses like these are here for a reason. So let's see what they are here to tell us. The word consider is used here in an ironic way, urging us to calculate the value of the trial in a countercultural way. The Apostle Paul used this same word in Philippians 3 when he said this Whatever gain I had, I counted, I considered as loss for the sake of Christ. James is basically saying, 
the reverse is also true. Whatever loss you have, and it's a real loss, whatever loss you have, count it as gain for the sake of Christ. That's why the real sorrow, the real sadness, the real grief, the real loss that comes with trials of various kinds can't end up on the pure joy side of the ledger. By the way, that is what James is saying, that trials can, for the Christian, be counted as pure joy, not necessarily all joy. Again, it's not that trials should be considered nothing but joy, but rather as a means of producing and leading us to full, complete, intense joy. Now, to see why this can be so, James will need to explain himself. James 1-2 is a fine verse, but you need more, right? Back this up, James. And so that's what he does in the next two verses. And as we've said, maybe throughout the whole letter. So the word trial in verse 2 is the same word used in the Lord's Prayer, usually translated temptation. Lead us not into... Temptation, right? That's how you learned it. That's how we say it. It's the same word that James uses here in verse 2. So we could translate verse 2 this way. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet temptations of various kinds. Now, the different English word is used because it is clear that a trial or a temptation can be looked at from two different perspectives. In the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, is followed by the request that God will deliver us from evil or from the evil one. So a trial is a temptation from the perspective of evil or the evil one whose hope for us in the trial that we face will be pure loss. But God has a different perspective. Which is why James can say that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. Now look down at verse 12. And James kind of comes back to this subject again. Notice that he uses the language of a beatitude. Blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial. You remember the Beatitudes that Jesus pronounced on the Sermon on the Mount? We studied these together, if you don't remember. It was a little while back. James is here then reflecting the same countercultural reality that Jesus was pronouncing in the Beatitudes. The person facing the trial doesn't look blessed any more than, say, do the poor in spirit persecuted, the meek. But something is there, something is there, which if we can see it from a right perspective, changes the equation entirely. And what we learned in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, what that thing is, is the arrival of the kingdom of God. So you have to face trials, you have to face temptations, from the perspective of the kingdom of God that has already broken in through Jesus. 
It is the arrival of the kingdom of God in which things are turned completely upside down. It is because God is taking over, Jesus said, and inaugurating his eternal kingdom on earth that at long last, things are not as they might seem. Temptations of various kinds are now, because of the arrival of the kingdom of God, turned into a testing of your faith that is meant to produce a positive result. Consequently, James's wisdom for Christians facing a trial of any kind is that we face it with a quiet confidence. A confidence, a quiet confidence. It comes from a kingdom perspective. You don't have a kingdom perspective about the trial, the test that you're enduring. You're not going to have a quiet confidence. But if you maintain a kingdom perspective, then this is what you can expect. Consider it pure joy, he says here, for you know. You know, don't you? (laughs) You know that in Jesus, your trials of whatever kind is meant to lead to something positive. So you must hold on to a quiet confidence in God through the entire trial. So how do we do that? Well, here's one thing. It's easy enough to follow the logic of verses 3 and 4. It's kind of set up as a logical statement. You can see the various trials you face as pure joy once you are certain, once you know that these trials will produce endurance, which will make us perfect complete, lacking in nothing. If you can see that progression, then you can have a quiet confidence. It's easy enough, too, to understand the first part of that logical statement, how trials can produce the quality of endurance. The word endurance, in its etymology, actually simply means remaining under. So you get the idea, don't you? You don't get stronger without remaining under a weight. So the question is, why would you want to get any stronger? Why hit the gym? Why remain under the weight? What are you trying to achieve? What is the strength that we seek that should motivate us to stay under the weight just a little longer? Well, James tells us here, he says the words here in verse 4, full effect, are more literally complete work. And the same word complete occurs again right after that, describing the Christian who remains under the weight of the trial. So here's what he's saying. When the work of perseverance is complete, when you have remained under the weight for the time that you need to be under it, The result is complete Christians. Lacking nothing, he says, which suggests to us the complete overthrow of sin, which has caused us to come up short 
of the glory that God intends for us to have as creatures made in his image. That's the reason we did the humanity series before James. Are you tracking with me here? All have sinned and come up short of the glory of God. The whole point of the gospel story, the whole point of salvation is about this. I'm going to make some of your eyebrows raise. It's about perfection, completeness, wholeness. It is not simply avoiding God's eternal judgment. It is that. But it is also arriving at God's intended end. So here's a verse that we like to say around here at Crosstown. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. Now put it together and see what it's saying. God's intention is to see, and he will see to it, that his glory, that is, the glory that he has put in his image bearers, will be complete and whole and will be spread over the face of the whole earth. You see it? This is not incidental to what the gospel story is all about. It is central to it. The faithful endurance of Christians, of trials of all kinds, is every bit the mission of God as is sending a missionary to an unreached people group. You didn't hear that. I worked hard on that sentence, so I'm going to say it again, and you're either going to shout amen or you're going to come up to me afterward and say, I challenge you on that, and it's for, I like both of those. So here it is. The faithful endurance of Christians of trials of all kinds is every bit the mission of God as is sending a missionary to an unreached people group. All right. Now we know that one day all trials will end. And when that day comes, we will be, in the words of James, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We do not believe, in case you're wondering, at Crosstown, that such perfection will be reached until, get this straight, we are raised from the dead at Christ's appearing. We're not looking forward to death. We're looking forward to resurrection. May Jesus come soon. But don't become so focused on Christ's second advent that you miss the power and importance of his first advent. It's because of what Jesus has already achieved for us that the trials which linger have lost their sting. For the Christian, the trials that we face can never be because God is punishing us. No way. Help your brother and sister when they face a trial and they are tempted to think that. Even if we face certain trials as a consequence, listen to me, of our own sinful acts, God is not punishing us for those acts. Rather, he disciplines us. 
He treats us like we are his beloved children. You know why? Because you are. In Hebrews 12, we are told that God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Now, at the moment of this discipline, Hebrews 12, 11 says, it seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So remain under. Don't give up. Don't turn away. That is why we are also told in Hebrews 12, verse 7, just a few verses earlier, that we must be steadfast in whatever trial we face. Here's what it says. It is for discipline you have to endure. God is treating you as children. For what child is there whom his father does not discipline? So you and I simply must endure. We must endure trials of various kinds because God is at work making us into Christians, the perfect, mature, complete human beings he created us to be. Now, I am afraid that saying stuff like this here, looking out upon you, sounds easy. Of course it's not easy. Part of the real value of a Christian community, of being in covenant with each other in the local church, is to come alongside one another as brothers and sisters, helping the weak, encouraging one another until, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4.13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature humanity to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The church, then, is designed by God as a means of grace to bring us to completion. You don't get there without the body of Christ. Here's another means of grace. James mentions it right here. Prayer, verse 5. It's one of the most well-known verses in James. But it must be read, of course, with verse 6. These two verses together summarize pretty much everything that Jesus himself taught us about prayer in the Gospels. Now, let's be honest. We tend to like verse 5. We tend to ignore verse 6. And that may be because we are scared off by the requirement that James says that we must pray with no doubting if we hope to receive anything from the Lord. Maybe that's why we don't pray, because we doubt too much. But actually what James means here when he says with no doubting is clarified by what he says in verse 8. So, if you're saying, man, I, I have doubts all the time. Well, what James means by doubting is what he means by double-minded in verse 8. A double-minded person, he says, unstable like a wave of the sea, is someone who vacillates between trusting God and looking elsewhere. 
They want wisdom from God one day and the wisdom of the world the next. To ask in faith with no doubting is to possess a single-minded determination to live by God's wisdom rather than by the wisdom of the world. It is this single-mindedness that also explains the paradox of verses 9 through 11. The wisdom of God gives the lowly person by the world's standards the freedom to boast, to see himself or herself from a kingdom and perspective in which they are nothing but blessed as a full citizen of God's eternal reign. The world looks down on you. You don't have much to offer to the world. You're insignificant. In Christ, you boast because you're a child of God. The rich person, by the world's standards, the person that the world looks at and says, hey, you're something. Hey, you're valuable. Hey, you got something to offer. The rich person, by the world's standards, will not find his or her confidence in his material status, but in his humiliation. In finding his identity among the lowly people of God who seek a better possession, one that will last forever. That, again, is the beauty of God's church who remain steadfast together in their faith in Jesus Christ. A quiet confidence that comes from a kingdom perspective where together as a body of Christ, we are united, brothers and sisters. We find our identity in who Christ says we are. Now, every church, like every Christian, will face trials of various kinds. Sadly, many churches, like many Christians, will give up. It'll just be too hard. But for those who remain steadfast, for those who show a steady resistance to the evil that threatens to destroy them, the reward, the reward is, well... It's beyond description. Verses 12 to 18 encourage us to remain steadfast, to maintain a steady resistance to the defeated powers of darkness, to the trials that we face because of the promise that God has made to us. How do we resist these dark powers? First, in the words of verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. We must resist every temptation to accuse God of seeking our downfall. The lie of the evil one from the beginning is to accuse God of being the evil one. Did God really say? Yeah, God's holding out on you an easy move to make. After all, God is sovereign. We are suffering. So, the evil one suggests, God must be against you. He must be seeking to do you harm. You ever thought that way? 
The rest of you are lying. The single-minded person sees through the lie. Verses 14 and 15 tell us that the temptation to sin comes from an evil impulse. You got that? The reason you are tempted to sin is because there's an evil impulse. It lures you away. But here's the deal. God has no evil impulse. Therefore, he could never, never be, be accused of trying to bring about evil in any one of us. How do we get to that conviction that enables us to remain steadfast under trial? I mean, if you can get there, if you're, if you're facing a serious, a weighty affliction, trial, and you're tempted to give up on God or his people or his grace, how are you going to get to this conviction that what you're facing is not God's being against you? You're going to get there through philosophy, stroking your beard, or you know, for those that say beard, stroking your beard, saying, hmm, it, doesn't, it can't be that. Is that how you're going to get there? Maybe, maybe. But a better foundation comes through New Testament theology. It is not, it's not just that no evil comes from God. It's just as important to hold on to the conviction that all good does come from God. You, you got you to gotta hold both of these things together. They're right here in our text. Verse 17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. What's more, it's not just that God has no evil impulse and so can never tempt us toward evil. It's just as true that God only has good impulses so that everything that comes to us in Christ comes to us as gift. You didn't hear that one either. Oh, man. God doesn't only not have any evil impulses. All of his impulses are for good. And so everything that comes to us in Christ comes to us as gift. I said we learn this not from philosophy, but from New Testament theology. We learn it from Jesus, where a cross of execution becomes for us the means of eternal life. And where the power of resurrection has brought us already into the future that's promised. The promised future has already broken in into our present reality. And so with that quiet confidence, we have a steadfast resistance. We press on. After all, as verse 18 says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And so when we have stood the test, verse 12 says, we will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. 
So we press on not simply to avoid evil. No, no. We press on to receive the good. We press on not only because we fear negative consequences if we don't. If I don't do this or do do this, God's going to bring down wrath upon me. If I go to prayer this Saturday, everything's going to go well for me. Or if I don't go to prayer, everything's going to go bad for me. Just get that perspective out. This is a kingdom perspective we have. We press on because we love the promise that God has made to us. What promise? What's the promise? What's the crown? What's the reward? What's the prize? Here's what he says. The crown of life. That is the crown, the reward, the prize, which is life. That's the prize. I said it's an indescribable gift. And I just said it's life. But it's indescribable because what does that mean? What does it mean to have life, eternal life? What we are hoping for is the promise of, yes, eternal life. But don't you see, it's eternal life as complete Christians. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce calls it more solid, more human, more alive, more real. Because we are fully remade in the image of the real human himself in Jesus. The Christian understands that the whole reason, don't you see, the whole reason that God, in verse 18, brought us forth by the word of truth, the whole reason he gave us life, the whole reason for our regeneration, the whole reason for our rebirth, the whole reason for our salvation is so that we will become grown-ups one day. What are you going to do when you grow up? Fully alive in God's new world. That is what God has promised. That is what God is bringing to fruition right now in the various trials you face under his fatherly care. And so we press on together because we're growing up together considering everything God brings into our lives as pure joy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you for this wisdom. We ask you for this wisdom. That we may begin to see everything from a kingdom perspective. That we would resist the powers of darkness that are seeking to fill our ears and our minds day by day with a worldly wisdom that is perishing. Now, we stand steadfast in Jesus Christ, looking for the promise, looking for the crown of life, full and complete, solid human beings in God's new world. And yes, we pray, Lord Jesus, come soon. That's what we're looking forward to. We're looking forward to resurrection. If by any means possible, I want to attain, Paul said, to the resurrection of the dead. So that's why I remain steadfast. That's why I stay committed to Christ and to his body, to his church, so that by his grace, 
one day the trials will all be over. The testing of our faith, we will see, will have made us complete. Would you give to your people now, Lord, this confidence that will keep us enduring one more day, one more week by your grace. We ask all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.